listener production. A warning, this podcast contains explicit language and discussions of forced adoption. On the 21st of March 2013, hundreds of people piled into the Great Hall at Parliament House in Canberra. Many had travelled across the country to be there, to witness history being made. When everyone was seated, then Prime Minister Julia Gillard entered the hall. She was met with a sea of applause. She made her way through the crowd, shaking hands with practically every person who stretched their arms towards her. The crowd went quiet as she reached the stage. They watched in anticipation. They'd waited decades for this moment. And not just those in the Great Hall, but hundreds of thousands of Australians. Julia Gillard then delivered a formal apology to all those that had been affected by forced adoption here in Australia. Today, this parliament, on behalf of the Australian people, takes responsibility and apologises for the policies and practices that forced the separation of mothers from their babies, which created a lifelong legacy of pain and suffering. We say sorry. An apology recognising the coercion the scale of the theft, and the trauma felt across generations. By saying sorry, we can correct the historical record. We can declare that these mothers did nothing wrong, that you loved your children and you always will. I'm Amelia Robohart and I'm a journalist from Brisbane. This is Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. For decades in Australia, it was common practice for single women to be forced, shamed or coerced into giving up their babies for adoption. It's estimated around 150,000 adoptions took place across Australia between 1951 and 1975. It is impossible to know for certain just how many of those babies were taken from their mothers without consent. After speaking with Diane Lilly, I wanted to know how forced adoption had come to be. Were there laws that were broken? Who was behind it all? And how did those mothers get that apology? Before we move on, we need to clarify some of the language that you'll hear in this episode. Different words have been used to describe the women and people involved in this system over the years. The most up-to-date terms are adoptive parents for those adopting the child and mothers for the women who gave birth to the child. One of the best people to take us inside the forced adoption system is Patricia Farrar. My name is Patricia Farrar and I wrote my PhD thesis in 1999 that was about the effects of forced adoption on mothers. Part of the reason she chose to research this is because she was one of these mothers. In January 1965, Patricia was 17 years old. Shortly after completing her final school exams, she found out she was three months pregnant. 
The father was someone Patricia met around town, but he wasn't the most reliable guy. She told him she was pregnant. And he said, I don't know what you expect me to do about it. I'm already married. And during that year, his wife had their first child. The father would come in and out of Patricia's life, but for now she couldn't rely on him. She had to tell her mum. My mother said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. And then she told me to get out. Patricia had some minor complications during the pregnancy. In April 1965, at six months pregnant, she took herself to Crown Street Women's Hospital, a public hospital in Surrey Hills, an inner city suburb of Sydney. And that was the place to go. They had two separate homes, I suppose, institutions for unmarried mothers. It was married women to the left, unmarried women to the right. In a crowded part of Sydney stands the Crown Street Women's Hospital. As we were putting this series together, we heard a lot of stories about Crown Street Women's Hospital. Babies come into the world in an atmosphere of understanding and tolerance. Horror stories. Crown Street was one of the most notorious hospitals in Australia that engaged in forced adoptions. Many of the women who lost their babies to adoption in New South Wales passed through its doors. They would see themselves as leaders in medical practice, but of course, in retrospect, they were leaders in in forced adoption. This is Shirley Swain, an emeritus professor from the Australian Catholic University and one of Australia's leading historians on social welfare. To understand how forced adoptions had become so widespread, Shirley says you have to look at the social and cultural attitudes towards women at the time especially the years after the Second World War, into the 1940s. You're getting a lot more children being born outside marriage. This gives great cause of concern to the government who's worried about the birth rate. And what they want to guarantee is that the children that are born outside marriage can have some kind of secure family. And they don't believe that single women can do that. There was this idea that unmarried mothers couldn't look after their own children and that by falling pregnant in the first place, they were moral failures. I found some fairly horrible news stories from around this time where they labelled single mothers ignorant, delinquents and their babies illegitimate. While this is all going on for single mothers, married women also faced immense pressure to have babies. And if you couldn't fall pregnant, you were shamed because you were failing in your duty as a wife. On top of all that, there's suggestions that infertility rates were increasing following World War II. The speculation there was that men had returned home with these venereal diseases. It's an old school way of saying sexually transmitted infections. And that rendered them infertile. And then the men, they would pass these infections onto their wives, partners, or other women. And IVF still is not a thing. So there's very few options for a married woman that can't fall pregnant. So they'd often go to a doctor and ask what they could do. Doctors, from about the 1940s on, start telling people who are infertile that they can cure them and they have treatments for them. Now, some of those treatments worked, but a lot of them didn't. And 
given that they're often practicing in the large maternity hospitals where these illegitimate, as they were called, children are being born, they see a kind of solution. They can get them a baby. It's just not going to be one that they give birth to. So you get an alliance between the obstetricians and the prospective adoptive parents to procure children. The theory underpinning these practices at the time was something called clean break theory. This meant people thought an adoption was more likely to be successful the earlier a mother was separated from her child. Institutions latched onto this as a formula for adoption. It even shaped adoption laws around the country. So clean break theory, the stigma single mothers faced, and married women struggling to have their own babies, it created a perfect storm for the forced adoption system to thrive across the country. And it wasn't just here in Australia either. This was happening in many other Western countries, like the United States, most of the United Kingdom, and even New Zealand. When single women entered a hospital or a maternity home, a code was written for them, often without their knowledge. Things like BFA, baby for adoption. At church-run institutions, these codes were recommended by religious sisters and they were recommended by social workers at public hospitals like Crown Street. The code when Patricia went to Crown Street in 1965, it was UB-. The U stood for unmarried, B stood for baby, plus meant the mother was keeping the baby, and UB- meant that the baby was for adoption. Social workers were typically from middle-class and educated backgrounds. Their job was to advocate on behalf of the unborn child, not the mother. They certainly believe that they're saving the child because the other experience that they've had in both situations is the fate of children whose mothers can't support them who end up in care. They all operate from that basis and the mothers become kind of disposable in that. There's no sympathy for them. Mothers have shared countless stories about social workers bullying, coercing and abusing them. They see the social workers as just harsh, judgmental and not listening and devoted more to the prospective adoptive parents and their pain rather than with the pain of the mothers who they just see as moral failures. Although this is a complicated picture, social workers may have been acting on orders from doctors who were trying to get babies for infertile couples. And in the medical model, everyone bows down to the doctor. They're not really in a position to rebel against what they're being asked to do. In mid-August 1965, Patricia was back at Crown Street. She'd gone into labour. Patricia recalls this feeling coming from the hospital staff. She felt as if they wanted her to be punished that she deserved what was coming for her. That by falling pregnant outside of marriage, she was a bad girl. Patricia also remembers this feeling she could wash off being a bad girl, but only if she gave her baby up. We were very brainwashed into believing that we were doing the right thing. The phrase that was always bandied about was in the child's best interests. So they would decide what that was. It certainly wasn't 
staying with the child's mother. No, our role, the mother's role, was to just get on with it. And one day you'll be happily married and have children of your own. And that, that was repeated over and over. I don't think I know of one woman to whom that wasn't said. They're constantly told that the best thing you can do for your child is to surrender it. That's the way you show your love. Then they're told, you know, if you do that, you can go home and no one will know what's happened and you can forget all about it and the shame will pass you by. As he was being delivered, a pillow was put on my chest to obscure my vision of him. The midwife who delivered him, she actually turned my hips around and put my feet against her. She was quite a large woman and said, now push. She pulled this huge baby out. Patricia heard her son cry. Before she could even touch him, he was taken from her. Birth stories like this were all too common. So you'll hear women will talk about being refused pain relief during labour, just say to them, well, you know, this is what you deserve. This is what happens to women who do this. And much cruder versions of that, which I'm not going to repeat, but really crude stuff. It was typically after the birth when women were coerced into signing adoption papers. It was either the third or the fourth day a social worker came with the adoption papers. And it was, I've got the papers you just sign on the dotted line. And we never thought to query it. I think we were just so overwhelmed. We were overwhelmed by the birth, by the experience. Many signed these documents in an incredibly traumatised state. Exhausted, often under the influence of medication and drugs that had been given to them, they were vulnerable and impressionable. Women came back distressed. Some came back realising that nobody was going to listen to them if they said they wanted to keep their baby. And even if they try to resist signing consents at that stage, they come under a lot of pressure, even being threatened with, you won't ever leave here till you sign this piece of paper. Signing these forms meant that there was written evidence the mother had consented to their baby being adopted. In some cases, maybe mothers did genuinely want to give up their baby. And adoptive parents often believed they were adopting an unwanted baby. But they were also told the mother could ask for their baby back. When mothers signed the adoption papers, they had a legal right to revoke consent. In 1965, when Patricia's baby was taken from her, adoption law in New South Wales was starting to change. Mothers now had just 30 days after signing their consent to revoke it. And other states had very similar laws. But nobody told the mothers they could revoke their consent. And not telling the mothers this was illegal. In the very rare chance a mother did somehow know their legal rights, they couldn't just say, I want my baby back. She had to go back to the place where she had signed the consents and announced to them that she wishes to revoke. I mean, hospitals and agencies made that extremely difficult. Also, there's often confusion between whether it's 30 days or 28 days or whatever in the legislation. So you have a lot of stories of people who try to make an appointment to go back 
and the appointment's delayed until after the end of that period and they go back and they say, oh, sorry, you've missed it, you're two days too late or something like that. If women did actually get the appointment and get into the room, they'd be subject to this strong counselling, so to speak. What are you going to do? What are your plans? How can you tell me that you're going to be able to provide for this child? Your baby's really happy with a married couple. Are you going to break their hearts and your baby's hearts by doing this? So a big guilt trip. As we were making this series, we accessed the archives of Teresa Wardell. She was a prominent social worker from the 1950s to the 1970s. Her archives were donated to the University of Melbourne. In these archives were some general documents on adoption. It's not quite clear what they were used for, but they talk a lot about social workers, how they were the best ones to choose the right baby for adoptive parents. You should not take a child into your home whose history and background have not been studied by an experienced and impartial social workers. Many a diseased or unhealthy or mentally defective baby have been adopted casually by unsuspecting people with tragic results. Jesus Christ. These documents also explained the process of adoption, which social workers oversaw. Firstly, the adoptive parents would approach an adoption agency, a public or private hospital, or a church organisation. If you decide to adopt a child through a children's home, the child welfare department or a hospital, you may be reasonably sure that the child is normal in body and mind, and both these things are vital to a happy adoption. My God. The adoptive parents would usually have to be churchgoers and have some social standing to even be considered in the first place. One of the tests that social workers did in making the placement was look at income levels. And they also looked at the lifestyle so that they wanted the father to be the breadwinner and the mother to stay at home generally to care for the child. And you needed some kind of reference from a doctor or clergyman. So you can see that that's already starting to cut out people at the bottom level of the social scale who just aren't going to be able to make that. A social worker would then match parents to a baby. They're trying to match looks so that the child will fit into the family. And they also try to match intelligence so that you're not going to have a child that is not going to live up to parents' expectations. But all of this is, is a very strange game because, of course, they're trying to imagine, usually as yet unborn child, and what they're going to turn out like is really just a fallacy. After Patricia's son was taken from her, she did her best to get on with her life. That all-too-common phrase. She trained for four years to become a registered nurse and she got back with the baby's father. Finally, we went to live together. I'd finished nursing and he was back and he was remorseful and everything was going to be all right. In 1971, Patricia was 24 and again, she was pregnant. She kept working, doing the night shifts in the renal unit at Sydney Hospital. And she went and talked to her boss about her situation. And I told her I was pregnant, but I wasn't married. But I was living with the baby's father and we planned to get married. And she asked me for my resignation straight away. She gave me two weeks' notice. And at that stage, I became aware that 
my baby's father had resumed the relationship with his wife. I mean, I was working five nights a week. He wasn't at home keeping the bed warm for me to get into in the morning. And he had a girlfriend around the corner. Patricia wanted to keep the baby. This was the wanted baby. I'd gone off the pill. And the baby's father insisted it's what he wanted too. But there wasn't any money coming in. I thought there must be some sort of financial support. I went back to see the same social worker at Crown Street because I thought she must know there must be some sort of pension or financial support. There were in fact several financial supports mothers were eligible for, but accessing them was another thing entirely. Women were routinely told there was nothing for them. For example... Women of my vintage were never told we were eligible for the deserted wives' pension. Some women could access this pension, but not everyone. To be eligible, you needed to have been a wife or in a de facto relationship and supported by a man at some point in time. Not that the social worker would have told Patricia any of this. She said no, there wasn't, which was a lie. She said to me, look, I think you really should give this baby up for adoption, she said, because really, you know, this man, blah, 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 not going, he's he's disloyal and unreliable. That meant sign on the dotted line that this is what you intend to do. And I did. I'd given birth to a daughter in June 1971, and she was taken for adoption. But I saw her when she was born. But that was it, I just walked out. Since the early 1950s, the forced adoption system had thrived on mothers remaining silent. But when Patricia gave birth to her daughter in 1971, other mothers who had had their babies taken from them had started speaking out. One of the first groups was the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, or the CSMC. The council originally brought together a group of single women who had kept their children. And they're the ones that we get the term single mother from, because up until then, they'd been called unmarried mothers but they said they wanted to be known as what they were rather than what they were not. CSMC claimed their first major win in 1973, soon after Gough Whitlam had become Prime Minister. That win was the supporting mother's benefit. It just makes a dramatic change in people's lives because the social workers can no longer say to them in the hospital, you're not going to be able to support this child. And they can say, well, actually we can. We're going to be eligible for this benefit. You wouldn't live a rich life on it but it gave you something that you could build your life on, at least at the start. And if you had a supportive family around you, you'd probably be okay. If you didn't have a supportive family around you, you'd be out doing cleaning jobs and low-level jobs to supplement it. It was there as an entitlement that was well-known rather than the other ones which were there but hidden. This benefit was part of a sweep of social welfare and healthcare reforms by the Whitlam government, including scrapping the tax on the contraceptive pill. Scrapping this tax and the introduction of the supporting mother's benefit 
saw the number of babies for adoption drop dramatically by the end of the 70s. The Council of Single Mothers and Their Children would continue to grow. Other women come to them who've surrendered their children or had them taken away from them, and so they extend their activism. CSMC inspired other mothers to speak up too. Mothers who had had their babies taken that had previously stayed silent. They were young, pregnant, shunned by a society that told them they couldn't keep their babies. Now those same women want justice. They started to form their own groups, seeking information and answers. And once they start to speak out, it's that same experience that it's not just me, there's a whole lot of people out there who feel like I do. Once you can identify that group as having been sinned against by the government or failed by the government, that's when you can start to act for change. It breaks the shame, that's what it does. It takes away the shame. In 1977, as these activist groups grew, Patricia and the father of her first two children got married. They went on to have another two children together, a son and a daughter. It was a rocky marriage. Patricia would always keep herself busy. She continued work as a nurse, picking up weekend and night shifts where she could. Because I knew that one day I would need to be able to support myself and the children. And I kept telling him that I was doing it for us. Whereas he lurched from job to job, getting the sack because he was screwing the receptionist or punching up somebody or, you know. So I thought, hang in there. Patricia started stacking up university degrees, including a diploma, a bachelor's, a master's, and of course, her PhD. In the late 1980s, Patricia joined one of those activist groups. And it's through this group that she became part of the New South Wales Committee on Adoption. Patricia says the idea of the committee was that they would advise the state government on adoption legislation. But it was made up entirely of adoptive mothers and social workers. That's until Patricia joined. She says she was the only mother. The only reason they allowed me to sit on it was because I was educated, I was university educated and had a professional qualification and I was nice. I was nice. Patricia remembers the first committee meeting she attended. It was held in a boardroom at the old Royal Hospital for Women in Paddington, Sydney. When she walked in, Patricia spotted someone standing across the room. She recognised her instantly. It was the social worker who had taken her consents all those years ago back at Crown Street. It's fair to assume someone in Patricia's shoes might freeze and just race out of the room. But instead, she confidently walked over and introduced herself. And I said to her, Oh, um, you probably don't remember me. Oh, she said, of course I remember you. Patricia, of course I do. She said, because you weren't like all those other girls. I could have slapped up. <laughs> and it wasn't the first time that that had been said to me. So I think there really was an unspoken 
class distinction there that was trotted out when it suited them, possibly to make me feel better. I don't know. What Patricia means is that in the eyes of the social worker, she was still a bad girl. She just wasn't the worst. Because she was white, middle class and educated, she was looked at more favourably while she was at Crown Street in the 1960s and 70s. Whereas the women and babies who didn't fit this background, the other girls, they were treated very differently. In the 1990s, activists around the country were narrowing their focus, becoming even more vocal about what they wanted. They wanted inquiries. An inquiry meant an opportunity to share their stories with the nation and recognition for what they had been through. Because adoption law is set by the states, activist groups would build a case for an inquiry in their respective state or territory. New South Wales led the way with an inquiry into forced adoption beginning in 1998. During the inquiry, a number of major adoption agencies did make some form of apology, but other groups have refused to budge, claiming their actions were simply a symptom of the times. Tasmania followed in 1999. The next step was to go national. After 18 months of taking evidence with hundreds of submissions and speaking to dozens of witnesses, it's been a heartbreaking inquiry. A Senate inquiry was held in 2011, with the report handed down in early 2012. The inquiry concludes those in positions of authority stood in judgment of the women instead of respecting them. The Commonwealth admitted it had contributed to forced adoption in one way, that there wasn't enough appropriate government funding available to mothers prior to 1973 that would have allowed them to financially support their babies. But aside from that, the government kicked most of that responsibility back to the states and the individual hospitals and institutions. In the end, when they bring down their report, they can say, well, it was actually all a state policy and the states did the wrong thing. Generally, they're not admitting liability themselves and they can emerge as the good guys. They say, even though as the states, you know, we'll give some money for this or that or whatever, but we expect the states to reform their practices and we'll expect them to report on how they've done that. The Senate inquiry said state governments and institutions should take responsibility for the past actions that were taken in their hospitals, maternity homes and adoption agencies. Despite this, the federal government did commit $11.5 million to those affected by forced adoption. And the inquiry laid out 20 recommendations, including working with the states and territories to set up specialised support services and consider a financial redress scheme. It also recommended an apology from the Commonwealth Government, which was taken up by the Prime Minister at the time. That was Julia Gillard. Through your courage and your grace, the time of neglect is over and the work of healing can begin. On the same day as the apology, Australian politics descended into chaos. Simon Crean, a senior Labor minister, called for a spill of all leadership positions, announcing his support for Kevin Rudd as leader. Media raced from covering the apology to Crean's press conference. This is not personal. This is about the party, its future, 
in the future of the country. Prime Minister Julia Gillard called a ballot for the leadership that afternoon. Ten minutes before the ballot was scheduled to start, Rudd announced he would not stand. A genuine moment of recognition for people affected by forced adoption was quickly overshadowed by a political circus. This year, 2023, marks 10 years since that apology. Reflecting on the apology a decade later, Lily Arthur speaks with a different tenor. I have difficulty resolving that an apology is going to fix this. You heard from Lily in the previous episode. She's now the director of Origins. They were involved in pushing for the Senate inquiry and apology. Lily had already observed two other apologies. Rudd's formal apology to Indigenous Australians in 2008, particularly the Stolen Generations, and the apology to forgotten Australians and former child migrants that was in 2009. After they got the apology, the, the fight went out of them. You know, everything just went flat. Nothing changed. By the time Julie Giller gave that apology 10 years ago, I'd seen the effect of what the apologies it did to the other groups. And I wasn't keen to accept apologies without some sort of framework for dealing with the effects of it. Legal, mental health effects and historical and the rest of it. You know, they hadn't done that. They hadn't consulted with us about what we would like to see, you know, before an apology to sort of say, well, we believe that you're sincere about it and you're going to do this, this and this. Many of the recommendations from the Senate inquiry involving financial redress and establishing support services have not been implemented. Lily doesn't believe that the Senate inquiry went deep enough. She's now fighting for a royal commission. I'd like it firstly to address the law, the legal aspects of it. We live with forged documents that still completes the lie. I want people to actually know and I really mean no, and it goes down as part of our history, there needs to be some truth-telling. I would like to get out of that scenario that portrayed me as willingly giving away my child. I want to revoke my consent and leave it in the hands of the state who adopted out my child, not me. And I'd like to get that record straight for a start. If I've signed something that was completely done by force, then I should be able to get out of that. And I think that every other mother should think about that, revoke their consent because it was obtained on the grounds of fraud. Patricia also wanted to set the record straight, that she didn't willingly give away her children. But even with an apology from the Prime Minister, the damage was already done. Patricia would later split with the father of her children, who she'd stayed with through all those turbulent years. She'd go on to meet her first two children when they became adults. But like so many families impacted by forced adoptions, the relationships, they're fractured. I thought they would be so thrilled to find that after not having anybody that looked like them, they had two parents and another brother and sister. But I don't think it worked like that. I think that just reinforced the feelings of abandonment, disconnection, and all of that. One of the reasons why I stayed with their father was because I thought, 
one day when I find them, I want them to know that I stayed with their father. But it just didn't turn out like that. I knew there was another side to these stories too. The stories of many who were taken from their mothers, just minutes, if not seconds, after they were born. I wanted to hear the stories of the adopted children. And she told me about my brother. And then I said, oh, what about me? And she said, yeah, you're adopted too. Well, like, I describe it as this huge hole opening up in the ground and just swallowing you up. That's next time on Secrets We Keep. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you've been affected by forced adoption practices, call 1-800-21-0313 and you'll be connected with the Forced Adoption Support Service in your state or territory. Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Roberhart. Producer, Jake Morecambe and Bonnie Lavelle. Fact-checking by Bonnie Lavelle. Sound design and mix by Niall Fernandez. Executive producer, Ellen Liebeter. With thanks to Tara Cassidy, Claire Weaver and Alistair Kirkby. Natasha Jobson's our head of news operations and Melanie Withnall, head of news and information. Archive material supplied by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales and the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia's Film Australia Collection. Episode 6 will be in your feed next Tuesday, the 5th of September. If you're part of the adoption community and want to tell us your story, you can email us at secretsweekheap at sca.com.au.